Alrighty, so this is the last week of our series that we've been looking at. Asking this very question, what should we be doing while we wait for Jesus to return? What should we be about while he returns? So um, as the story goes, Jesus had died and he'd been resurrected and he'd returned to the earth and he was walking around visiting the disciples over a period of about 40 days. And then he gathered all the disciples together on the Mount of Olives. And as he stood there, he gave them the Great Commission. And then he, he actually rose up into heaven and vanished. He disappeared. And as they were staring there in amazement, like, what the heck just happened? Um, angels appeared and they said, don't be afraid. But Jesus is going to return the very way that he Sorry, yeah, did I get that right? Jesus is going to return the very way that he left. Um, So be of good heart. And so we've been asking this very question. Okay, so he's gone up. He said he's going to come back down again, and we don't know when. So so what do we do? Well, fortunately, before he left, he gave us a few clues. um, And that's what we've been looking at over these last few weeks. What do we do? And um, the disciples asked Jesus that very question. And he addressed them quite specifically, um, and we can read all about it in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. And so he, he, as often happens when we go to ask Jesus a question, instead of giving us a straight answer, he gives us more than we bargained for. Have you had that experience before? You go and ask Jesus a question and he gives you more than you bargained for? It's not quite what I was after, just give me the simple answer. But he gives us more, he gives us something to, th- to think about, something to chew on. Um, and so he tells a series of stories, and uh, we've gone through these parables, basically, that Jesus talked about, the thief in the night. He talked about the parable of the faithful servant. He talked about the parable of the ten bridesmaids. And last week, Christy preached about the story about the bags of gold. And today I'm going to be talking about the final story that Jesus um, shared with the disciples that day. And, and so many of these stories have been talking about this, what do we do about this tension of delay? This tension of delay. So Jesus has gone and he said he's coming back. And all these stories are about what to do if there is a delay. It's almost like he was preempting them. He was like warning them, hey, there might be delays. But we hate delays. I don't know about you, but I hate delays. There's nothing more frustrating when you're going to press your app for the iPhone for an app to load, and it doesn't, like, load. And those two seconds that you have to wait for that thing to load, it's like, it's, it seems like must be, well be years for the time that I've wasted waiting for this freaking app to load. It's so frustrating. You know that little rainbow wheel on your computer? When something doesn't happen? Don't fool me about the rainbow. It's not a rainbow. I'm not happy. <laughs> this morning, I was driving to work in a state of bliss and prayer and almost being caught up into heaven. But there was someone in the right-hand lane who was doing 99 on the freeway. There is nothing more frustrating. 99! One kilometer below the limit. Give me some freedom. The delays this is causing me getting to church on time. We hate delays, don't we? We just, something about us gets so aggravated. But to be a bit more serious, 
there's plenty of times in our life when we face delays. There's plenty of times where we know that God has given us a promise and He said something significant to us that gives us so much hope and and just like, yes, this is going to happen. The dream that I've always been dreaming, God's confirmed it. It's going to happen. And yet there's a delay. Ah, there is a delay before the completion of that thing. And that can, can leave us frustrated. It can leave us sometimes despondent. And it can even lead to apathy sometimes. We can just kind of give up. So I think Jesus was being quite specific when he spoke to the disciples about, the, about these very issues. So let's have a read of this, hey? I'm going to read to you from Matthew 25, and it's up on your screens if you'd like to follow along. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. I think straight away, it's almost like this is probably one of the first times where Jesus is acknowledging to everybody because so far, Jesus has been Jesus meek and mild. And at every turn when the disciples have been, or everybody's been expecting a triumphant Jesus, a Jesus to ride in on a white horse with a big sword and to do justice upon the earth, he's come riding on a donkey. He's come talking about being humble and meek. And now for the first time, he's acknowledging that this day will come. That the son, and he's not being proud about it, but he's acknowledging that this day will come that he is actually a king and he will actually return. Sorry, I've just lost my spot. I wonder if my pages are back to the front. Uh -huh. <laughs> read on, read on. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So we're acknowledging, and maybe for the first time too, that Jesus is saying there will be a final judgment. There will actually be a time where he draws a line in the sand. There will actually be a final Yes and no. And so often, I, I mean, I, I struggle with this too. Like, is there actually, can't there just be a third kind of grey category? Like those, the sheep and those, the goats and those, the kind of in between and you, it's, it's still okay. But there is actually a time that Jesus is acknowledging there is going to be a time where I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he uses this analogy of the sheep, and it, it features throughout the Bible. He uses the, the analogy of sheep so often. It's quite a biblical thing. And, you know, we're often described as sheep. David in Psalm 23 talks about, the Lord is my shepherd. And, uh, you know, if you haven't been close to sheep before, you might think, oh, that's a nice thought, a sheep. They're all sort of soft and white and fluffy. When you get up, up close and personal with sheep, you discover they're yeah, not quite so pretty, are they? A bit stinky sometimes. I don't know if you've ever been close when those um, sheep trucks come by on their way to Fremantle Port. And the stench that just is, is from miles away. But David was willing to say, hey, I'm like a sheep. That's, that's a big thought. 
to acknowledge that I'm a sheep. And there are certain things about a sheep that I think we can get some wisdom from. And um, I prepared a little slide here. Do you like him? Sean the sheep. <laughs> so let's have a look at some of the qualities of a sheep that I think is similarities that we can draw from us, for us as Christians. For a start, sheep are often humble creatures. You know, they're not that special and it's important for us to acknowledge, hey, you know, we're, we're not always all that. We sometimes paint ourselves out like we are, but really, sheep are pretty humble things. They're willing to be led, and I put in brackets mostly. But they're willing, like David when he said, the Lord is my shepherd and he makes me lie down in green pastures. He's guiding me and he's leading me. And I'm, I'm willing to be led. And that's the thing about a sheep. They don't have it all together. They understand that. And if I, okay, sure, I don't have it all together. But I have the advantage, even though I'm not a predator, I don't have big fangs and claws to defend myself with. But I do have a shepherd. That's even better. Having a shepherd, having somebody to look out for you, Somebody's there to guide you and to lead you. Someone who's stronger than you, who can lead you, who can look after you, and give you the safety that you actually need because you are a sheep. Sheep's also part of a flock. The sheep's not an independent creature that kind of ekes out a living on its own. It belongs. It belongs with other sheep. Jesus was using that analogy of sheep and, and also goats. And if you think about goats, they're a little bit different in the way that they behave. Goats are much more wily. Goats are smart. Goats have the street smarts that sheep don't have. Goats like to think for themselves. Goats have got a plan. And all of these sort of qualities of a goat is kind of what most of us will go, well, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Goat behavior is actually pretty cool. Being a goat is, yeah. Like in our society, we like that idea of independence. We like that idea of free thinking. We like that idea of questioning authority. And I'm not saying all of those things are bad, but can you see the contrast between the behavior of a sheep and a goat? All right, let's read on. So the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to, to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Interesting too about sheep and goats is that from a distance you can look at them and they kind of look the same. So the distinction that Jesus was bringing out was not so much about what they looked like, but about what they did and about what they didn't do. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and, and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I like this message translation says, Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. 
you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whenever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Wow, I know. That's a heavy kind of passage to talk about on a Sunday morning, isn't it? It's pretty serious in the, in the way that he's painting out this finality of judgment. And I don't want to dwell on that too heavily, but it's important for us to understand that that day will come. There comes a day, and it's not for us to judge. It's not for us to make the decision. But Jesus knows our hearts and knows our responses. We'll one day have to give an account for the way that we live our lives. But I find this story a little bit confusing because we've been hearing from Jesus all about grace, all about if you believe in me, you shall be saved. For the Father loved the, the world so much that he sent his only Son that anyone who believed in me shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay, so I understand it's about believing, but now all of a sudden he's talking about doing. He's talking about the things that you do. I, that throws up confusion in my head. What, what is it? Is it the faith? Is it the believing? Or is it in the doing? Not really sure. I mean, how does it work? Do I have to do more good deeds for, to be accepted by Jesus? Is he going to tally up all my good deeds at the end of time and to see what I've done and what I haven't done? What about non-Christian people who do good stuff? Do they, are they then part of the sheep because they've done great things, they've done really good works? What about the thief on the cross who Jesus said, today you are with me, you will be with me in paradise? Well, how does that compute? How, how does that fit in? He was being accepted, but he was probably surrounded by the people, the disciples of Jesus. Some of those he probably stole off them too. And they were scratching their heads wondering, well, how does he get in? What good works has he done? I'm going to be asking more questions than I'm answering today. But that's okay. It's good for you to think about these things. So James addresses this in some way. In James chapter 2, and I'm going to read it to you from verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters... If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. What he's getting at is this. 
My faith should actually lead me to action. My, my faith is where it begins. My faith is the believing. The transformation should be taking place on the inside and there must be an outworking of that faith or it's not real. It's not real. We must turn our faith into action, otherwise it's not Christianity. It's something else, which I, I, kinda, I don't have a word for it. You know, um, we, we were at a conference last week, and we heard a story from a pastor in England. And he tells this very difficult journey that his church went on many years ago. They had a successful church. Maybe 700 people went along to it. And he goes, it was awesome. It was comfortable. It got to the point where they knew what they were doing. They knew how everything worked, and every, everybody enjoyed themselves. And he goes, but there was something missing about our church services. There was something missing about our church that made me very uncomfortable. And so what he did was he started busing people in from other parts of the city. They were in a city called Bradford, which was um, highly multicultural type of a city. And yet, if you were to walk in their church, you would think that their church was in a suburb of, you know, like a banking class of London or something like that. Everyone white, middle class, wealthy. And so what he did was he, he sent buses out to really poor neighborhoods, what they call the projects where, you know, people didn't have money. It was filled with people who really trying to get by, addicts of various different types. And he'd get them to come in to the church service. You can imagine the cat amongst the pigeons. They'd been quite happy to sing songs about saving the lost, crying big salty tears about helping the poor. But when the poor started coming in and sitting next to them, smelling a bit different, wearing different sort of clothes, all of a sudden, he said, they used to leave their expensive handbags on their seats and go out for coffee. All of a sudden, they started thinking twice about leaving their bags. They were kind of looking around as they went off. Don't you see that? Don't you? I'm watching you. And the church went through a massive restructure, basically. And about 300 of those 700 people left the church. And, and the church gradually morphed, it gradually changed. But can you see that our faith has to be accompanied by action? We can't just be all about the words. We can't just be all about the good intentions. So let me get back to this thing about delay. Delay that we hate so much. And we're talking about not just a little delay, we're talking about 2,000 years of delay. That's a lot of delay. 2,000 years of delay. Jesus was preempting that delay by telling us to be busy about our Father's work. He gave us a number of stories which basically we're all saying, be busy, keep doing, keep doing the right thing, be faithful, be diligent about what I've called you to do. The temptation when there's a delay is to fall into apathy, is to fall into, well, who cares? Like nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen to me if I do it. Nothing's going to happen to me if I don't do it. So I might as well just not do it. I might as well just enjoy myself, look after number one and be happy with that. And apathy is, is such a killer for conviction. But these stories are telling us, don't be apathetic. 
Shake that apathy off and get moving. Move yourself into action. You know that saying that says the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Good intentions. What are good intentions? They're nothing. We have so many of them all the time, but they don't add up to anything unless we actually turn them into some kind of action. Alrighty, so I'm going to give you guys a to-do list. What can we do? How can we turn these stories and actually turn them into action for our own life? Step number one is that we can listen. We can listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that's the wonderful thing. If you are a believer, you've got the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you. He can speak to you. He can guide you. How awesome is that? You know, this is, don't get me wrong, this story of of the final judgment, it's not like he's going to withdraw himself from us for our whole lifetime and then just watch like he's like the examiner. That's not the approach. You have the Holy Spirit within you. He's guiding you. He's leading you. He's, He's drawing you. He's speaking you. He's giving you promptings. So listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and obey them. Second thing we can do is that we can act. Act. It's a simple word. It's a strong word. We can act. We can actually do something. We can respond to those promptings of the Holy Spirit. You know when he says, you have that feeling in your heart about that person. You can say to them when you discover weeks and weeks later, Hey, you know what? I was thinking about you back then. My, uh, you've been on my heart. Well, you've been on my heart doesn't translate to anything, does it? You've been on my heart may not mean anything to that person who's just been through a struggle. But turn that feeling into some kind of action. There's so, much, so many things you can do just off your own bat. But us as a church, we've got lots of group activities, if you like, that we deliberately do to help us all obey so we've we've just had serve week what a great way for us to act what a great way for us to step out and help other people we've got this amazing christmas pop-up shop coming up very soon at the back of the church you'll find that that thing and brad and beck have done such an amazing job so we're going to be um, buying a whole array of things for people who can't um, afford them themselves and being able to bless them on christmas So we'll be buying some stuff and we're going to be inviting those people to come in and choose some presents for their kids. We're going to be putting together hampers for people to celebrate something, to have something really nice to to enjoy at Christmas time. So there's another opportunity. Hey, join a small group. There are opportunities around you in a small group of people who are going through things just like you that you can reach out to and help. You can be part of our dream team. Dream Team is a great way of you getting outside of yourself and reaching out to other people and doing something and acting on it and helping others. All right, the third thing that we can be doing, we can reach out. What I mean by that is this. Don't let your insecurities get the better of you when it's an opportunity for you to reach out and help somebody else. Don't be so kind of hemmed in and hurt by your oh no i can't reach out to those people what what if they say something what if what if they hurt my feelings what if they don't get my jokes well 
Join the club. <laughs> you know, just reach out. This is the whole wonderful thing about church. It's not a club where we all look the same. We're not the cool club. You, you know, there'll be people that you can reach out to. They may not understand what you do. They may wear different clothes to you. They may not be cool like you're cool. Hey, but reach out. Don't be hemmed in by your own insecurities. Let's not be a church that's full of cliques, of inward-looking, inward-focused people. Let's be a church that we're willing to look out. We're all the same. We are all family. And that's what the church should be. Finally, my last point is this. Don't disqualify yourself. Don't allow a victim mentality to rob you of opportunities to help other people. So often you can think, but I'm going through struggles. I'm the one who needs help. I'm the one who should be reached out to. There was no clause that I could read in that story where Jesus said, oh, no, if you're going through tough stuff, you don't have to do this. It wasn't like that at all. The responsibility lies on every believer. So don't let those things get in the way. Don't disqualify yourself. Even though you're going through a a struggle or a challenge in your life, you still have an opportunity and the Holy Spirit will still give you opportunities to reach out to those around you. How awesome is that? That even in our weak state, God will bring people into our lives that we can help. All right, guys, so there's four key things that we can do. We can listen to the Holy Spirit. We can act. We can actually step out and do something. Don't just allow good intentions to be where it ends. Step out with some kind of activity. Reach out beyond your insecurities and don't disqualify yourself. You've got something good that you can add. Alrighty, well, um, I hope that encourages you, kind of shakes you up a little bit. I believe that Jesus is going to return to a glorious bride. I honestly believe that as a church, we're not going to sink down into apathy or irrelevance. We're going to rise up as a glorious bride. We're going to be powerful, we're going to be effective, and we're going to be full of love to those around us. I 100% believe that the church has a destiny that is wonderful, that is beautiful. And guess what? We are the church. It's us. It's on us. There's no cavalry coming to make it better. There's no Jesus' younger brother coming later to stir us up. No, it's us. The future and the success of the church depends on us. There's nobody else, just us. Seemed like a crazy idea, but anyway, that was Jesus' plan. It's us. Warts and all. So let's be the church, church. Let's actually function as the church. Let's reach out to those around us. Let's act and don't just think. Let's pray.